Well, here we are again. Here we are again at day four of our conference. I, I must say it's been a, a strange experience to be organizing and taking part in and sharing a conference when actually we're only looking at pictures. <laughs> but it's been a good week. I've been very blessed in preparing it and I, I pray that the Lord will bless each of us as we hear what is to say. Now, Monday, we began to consider our theme, life living by God or living in God. Um, then on the second day, Tuesday, we considered that trusting God for restoration and revival was on the agenda. Yesterday, we looked at trusting God for holiness or sanctification, focusing again on Jesus. And all the uh, groundwork for this is in the letter of Paul to the Colossians. So that's where we've been. And tonight we're considering trusting God in the fellowship of the saints in church. And it is quite challenging. When we saw the strength of Paul's words in Galatians, chapter 2, verse 6, it made me sit up. And what we read was, just as you received Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live in him. This is further expounded in chapter 3 when Paul continues, since then you have been raised with Christ, set your hearts and minds on things above. There Christ is seated at the right hand of God. No longer set your mind on earthly things. Why? Because, Paul goes on, because you died and your true life is now hidden with Christ in God. We die to self in order to live to God. So that's where we are today. And the verses from chapter 2, verses 5 to 9, are quite specific concerning our previous way of life, a way of life from which we've been saved, a, a way of life with which we must learn to deal. Because that way of life, that old way, the old man in us, insists on coming back to life in temptations, in weakness. And we have to know the way out, the way back. But how do we take off the old self and put on the new self? We are encouraged in verse 5 of chapter 2, that is, to put to death whatever belongs to our earthly nature, that's a daily activity. It's like taking off an old garment, which is no longer any use. Indeed, it's not any use. It's not that it's not any use. It's worse than that. It's a disgrace to be seen in such clothing. I know, Alfie will say to me occasionally, why are you wearing that shirt again? And I said, well, I'm going out to work in the garden. Well, you, you had it on yesterday. And uh, tr translating that into what we're reading here in the scriptures, 
every day we are wearing a, 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 wearing a garment. We're, 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 we are on show, we're on display. So every day we take off an old garment. It's no longer any use. Indeed, it's worse than useless. It's a disgrace to be seen in such clothing. It's as if the king's sons are dressed as vagrants, as tramps. Every day we need to be reminded to put to death those things which belong to the old life. Alan Redpath, a preacher in the last century, said, rightly understood, the Christian life is just a series of new beginnings. Paul goes on in verses 12 to 14 of the second chapter of Colossians to identify the positive aspects of the new life. He encourages us as God's chosen people, that is God's sanctified people, who are holy and dearly loved, to clothe ourselves. This is a complete contrast to the old life. This is the fruit of the spirit, that we are reclothed, as one hymn has it, reclothed in our rightful minds. That is a mind controlled by God. The list of clothes which we are invited to wear is quite, quite helpful. Verses 12 to 15 says this. This is our spiritual wardrobe. This is where we go to put the new clothes on. And he says, be clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, forbearance, forgiveness, and love. And a similar list in Galatians is called the fruit of the spirit. These are not aspects of our life that we have to work at. They're aspects of our life we have to recognize are God-given by his spirit. This is a complete contrast to the old life. This is the fruit of the spirit that we are to expect. The clothing we are encouraged to adopt is not ours but belongs to someone else. This is Christ's robe of righteousness that we are called to wear. And once more, this is not a list of aims for the student of self-effort. We cannot generate these beautiful articles of our, for our wardrobe. We can only trust God for them recognize when they are not present and seek forgiveness and cleansing so that he might reclothe us, as the hymn writer puts it, reclothe us in our rightful mind. It's a checklist of virtues which flow from a closer walk with God. It's what happens to those who have a deep trust in Jesus and his work of complete salvation. This is what the church should look like, because this is what makes the church to grow. When we wear those garments, the garments of salvation. In Isaiah chapter 61, verse 10, 
we read, he has clothed me with garments of salvation and arranged me in, arranged me in a robe of righteousness. God has done that work. We don't do it. He does it for us. Look at the Acts of the Apostles now. To read the Acts of the Apostles, it's, it's just like reading a newspaper account of the growth of Christianity or a history book even. In it, we see the number of believers growing at a phenomenal rate. We see missionary activities undertaken in the most difficult situations. We see martyrdom. We see bravery. We see demonstrations of faith. We see signs and wonders performed by the apostles. We also see a new phenomenon arising. We see a church, a body of believers of all classes, of all nations, male and female, slaves and free. We see them in fear and in boldness. We see them in confusion, clinging together and in faith, stepping out into a world that they turned upside down. This remarkable movement of God in the world is his church, the living evidence of the resurrection of his precious, precious son. And the New, New Testament letters that follow after this amazing account of God at work in those early days of the faith are very largely written to groups of young Christians, young in the faith and needing to know how to walk together in this life of faith. That is the subject of this last study of the week, walking together and keeping in step with the spirit, trusting in the fellowship of the saints. What we looked at together yesterday was our calling to personal holiness, which itself is a result of personal revival. But the reality of this holiness, this sanctification, is seen in a relationship within the church. It's significant that in the letters of Paul, he nearly always follows a call to personal holiness <coughs> with an instruction on how to live together in fellowship. In Galatians, after that great statement of the fruit of the Spirit, he goes on to say, since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. And then he says, and let us not become, become conceited, provoking and envying each other. And he follows this by a chapter in which he attempts to correct some faults he has discovered in the church there. In Ephesians chapter 5 and verse 18, after instructing the believers in the way of holy living, he concludes, be filled with the Spirit. And then he instructs them how to behave as a fellowship of God's people. In Philippians, he encourages the believers to stand firm in the Lord as citizens of heaven. Immediately after this, he seeks to mediate between members of the church there who are not able to agree with one another. And here in Colossians chapter 3, he runs straight from verse 12 where he has exhorted them to clothe themselves with the evidence of holiness, to verse 13, where he becomes intensely practical. Here he unfolds what he means by keeping in step with the spirit. And first he deals with the hearts of his readers. 
the evidence of being clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience is to be seen in our willingness to forgive. Keeping in step with the spirit is essential in our churches together, in our fellowships with one another. If we are not keeping in step with the spirit, there's no compassion, therefore no forgiveness. Mm -hmm. There's no kindness, therefore no forgiveness. There's no humility, therefore no forgiveness. There's no gentleness, there's no patience, and therefore there's no forgiveness because each of those are negatives, they achieve nothing. And so Paul, first of all, deals with the hearts of his readers, the evidence of being clothed with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience is to be seen in our willingness to forgive. This is the heart of a revived fellowship. They know how to forgive and they do it. And this is how it's done. Bear with each other, says Paul. Compassion and kindness and patience are in operation. You know, I find it hard sometimes to bear with one or two people who literally get up my nose. And I, I find myself having to repent of reaction to repent of unkind thoughts because I'm told that I have to bear with each other compassion and kindness in operation. He then says, forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. This is humility and gentleness in operation to, to forgive grievances. A little while ago, I had to mediate between two members of the church who'd really fallen out big time. And as a result, one left the church and didn't want to come back and yet didn't want to leave. But he felt he couldn't come back because of the problem he'd got with this other member. The other member claimed he didn't know what it was all about, but realized something had gone wrong. And I said to one of them, when are you going to sort this out? When are you going to come back into the church? And he said, well, if only the other one would talk to me and we could talk it out, then I would willingly come back. And so I said, well, would it help if I arranged a meeting between you, the other person and myself? Well, yes, I suppose so, if, if he's prepared to come and talk to me yes that will be all right I said would you like me to do it he said yes go on then so we did have the meeting it was a stormy meeting to start with but towards the end there was a softening and a few weeks later they were both in church together and peace reigned and the spirit of God had worked yet another miracle Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another. 
forgive as the Lord forgave you. Now that's good. We're told how to learn the way to forgiveness. And it's by recognizing that we ourselves need and receive forgiveness as we turn to Jesus. And then he says, and put on love. And you know, love is the result of forgiveness. When I love the other members of the church, when I love those who really I would rather not love, but when I bow before the Lord, when I repent of my selfishness, when I ask for help, then the result is forgiveness. And this is a progression in which each stage is a mark of a revived heart. We can't do any of these things on our own strength. We can't do it if we want to even, unless we have access to God's spirit who will clothe us with that lovely wardrobe of clothes that we read of earlier. To be members of a peaceful fellowship is a progression in which each stage, the mark of a revived, revived heart. And this is the way we're to put on love. Love which binds all the fruits of the spirit together in unity. And where there is unity, this unity must be preserved. So now Paul turns to deal with the minds of his readers. When there is unity, the evil one will seek to destroy that unity. That hidden voice that says, that person's not very good, that person's no, no, no right to be here, or that person's a bitter person, why doesn't God do something about it? That's not me speaking. It's Satan whispering in my ear. The evil one is seeking to destroy the unity of the church. So where there is unity, this unity must be preserved. So now Paul deals with the minds of his readers. When there is unity, the evil one will seek to destroy it. Therefore, Paul introduces a referee. And a referee is one who stands between two opposing parties. That's what referees do, whether it's on the football ground or whether it's in a court case or whether it's even in a church. Paul introduces this referee, the peace of Christ. If we don't have peace over a matter, then we need the referee. If we avoid other people because we don't get on with them, we need peace, the peace of Christ. In our hearts, in our innermost being, we have a God-given ability to know right from wrong. It's called a conscience. And God can speak to me in my conscience. I'm sure he can speak to you too in your conscience. But sometimes I can be very stubborn and say, ah, yes, but. And the minute I say those words, I know I'm in the wrong. I know I need to repent. 
In Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verse 11, we read that God has set eternity in the hearts of men. That's a lovely thought that the referee is always there. He set eternity in the hearts of men. It's here that we discern God's will and purpose. It's here that peace is given as a referee to establish peace among God's people. We got used to the expression years and years ago in the revival movement of saying, I lost my peace about so-so or such and such, because we realized that peace is the referee that God has given us in our hearts to establish peace among God's people. But the command is let the peace of Christ rule. Allow it, permit it to arbitrate between us when we cannot immediately agree on any matter. We were called to peace and it's a plural peace. If we are not agreed, we cannot proceed. And therefore we seek peace. We were also called to gratitude. Paul Taylor puts at the end of this, this long message to us, he says, and be thankful. Be thankful to Jesus. For it's his peace which is the referee in our hearts, not ours, his. He makes peace by the blood of the cross. Chapter one of this letter to the Colossians, verse 20, talks about peace by the blood. When two come together in repentance, he makes them one, thus maintaining that unity which love has brought and which love bought at an the expense of our Lord Jesus on the cross. Paul then addresses the need for us to live in the word of God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, think about this. The scriptures, New Testament, were not yet available. They weren't complete at the time of the writing of the letters. There was no New Testament. So where was the word of Christ to be found? And here were the apostles, those who had been with Jesus. They were constantly passing on the knowledge they had of Jesus. First-hand knowledge, practical knowledge. Peter wrote, we did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. My goodness, that is good evidence. We were there, says Peter. John wrote, that, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim. As the disciples met for teaching and correcting the correction of the word, the message of Christ was to be central. It was to be an integral part of their understanding. Paul says, we take captive every thought to make it obedient to Christ. In other words, all our experience and every conversation should be subject to the comparison 
with Jesus. It's no longer a case of what I say or I think. It's not what this teacher or that writer says about such matters. It is that which is in conformity with Christ that we must follow. Listen to Paul again in Romans 12, verse 2. Do not conform any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Only then will our teaching be the teaching of wisdom. Now Paul turns to the behaviour of Christians in the fellowship of the saints. It's in chapter 3, verses 17 to chapter 4, verse 1. First of all, he establishes the basis for all that is to follow. He says, whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. He's going to address wives and husbands. He's going to speak to children and fathers. He will have a word for slaves and masters. And to them all, he says, whatever you do, do it all in the name of Jesus. How easy it is to do things in our own name, to claim the credit for what we apparently have achieved, to accept the praise for what we have done, to have our name on a memorial to the memory of a generous benefactor. How unlike John the Baptist, who said of Jesus, he must increase, but I must decrease. We are firmly instructed here that what we must do must be done in his name, in the name of Jesus. Whatever we say, whatever we do, would Jesus say that? Would Jesus say it that way? Would Jesus do that? Would Jesus do it that way? Jesus is the key to the way we live in fellowship with other Christians. But of course, this is only possible if our life is hidden with Christ in God, as we have been learning. Here again is evidence of a revived heart. It can truly and honestly say, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. If we truly continue to live in him, the heart of revival is living in Christ then we shall indeed do everything in his name, for he will be living his life through us. This makes the instructions for fellowship so much easier to accept. Wives, be a wife in his name. Husbands, be a husband in his name. Children, be children in his name. Slave, be a slave in his name. Master, be a master in his name. Do you see what a difference this would make to all our relationships if they were brought under his name? In other words, everything is to be brought under the lordship of Christ. To conclude our studies this week, one last word. Those, the way to walk in in fellowship is walking with Jesus. And I pray that I'll be kept true to that vision of walking with Jesus, 
whoever I'm talking to, whatever I'm doing, whatever God calls me to do, that I will do it not in my name, but in his, not for my sake, but for his. Not that I should be built up, but that the church of Jesus should be built up, strengthened and blessed. The way to walk in in fellowship is walking with Jesus. Well, bless you all. This week's been a good week for me. I hope it's help, been helpful to one or two of you there. Let's go on in fellowship. Let's look forward to Jesus. Mm -hmm. Let's look upward to Jesus. Let's look around us to Jesus. Because Jesus is the one on whom we depend. So bless you all. See you again some other time soon, I'm sure. <laughs> Thank you, Jeff. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you. <clears throat> you set a benchmark for us to follow there, <laughs> uh, which I'm sure will be useful in the days to come. And I think we've got a testimony now uh, from Emma, <clears throat> the faceless <Hi>. one. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, they should. Oh, <laughs> nice to see you, Emma. Thank you. <laughs> well done. Oh, this is awkward. <laughs> okay, if I'm not looking directly at the screen, it's just because it's a little bit distracting. Um, yeah, so I, when I was asked to do this testimony tonight, I, I was a little bit reluctant to say yes because I don't really do a lot of um speaking in front of people um and it's I'm not much of a one for talking about personal things um but what Dave was saying tonight about having fellowship with other Christians is something that really struck me and that's something that I've recently and when I say recently I mean over the last couple of years been struggling with um, I really have always struggled with um, social interactions with meeting other people and I find it very difficult to um, uh, to go out there and be sociable so I have not had a home church for maybe 15 years it's been a long time this fellowship has been my church my mum has been my church my dad was my church um, and yeah this fellowship and that's been it and it's really been on my heart to find a church and to find that fellowship that I've been lacking. But I'm quite stubborn. And God knows that I'm quite stubborn. And he has to find certain creative ways to get me to do anything. Um, and he's really has had to push to get me to the point where now I'm, you know, I've, I've introduced myself to a church and I'm going semi-regularly. Um, it, to be honest with you, I was at quite a low point, I would say, beginning of 2020. So those of you who know my dad knew him well, know that he died at the end of 2019. Um, and at the time that he passed away, I was working 80 hours a week. I was in the middle of a divorce. It was, <coughs> my life was just in pieces. And it, 
it was very much a case of I wasn't focusing on God. He was still there, but he was in the peripheral vision. He wasn't, I wasn't focusing on him. Um, and I think that meant that I, I just started to fall apart at the seams. And at the beginning of 2020, I think I pretty much crashed and burned. Um, and that this was literally just before the pandemic hit. And God did an amazing thing with me in that um, when the pandemic hit, I started working from home. Um, and my job at Heathrow Airport is to, um, was at the time to deal with attendants and colleagues who were, you know, who were absent from work. And of course, when the pandemic hit, all of a sudden, thousands of people were absent from work. And he took the focus off me and my life and forced me into a situation where I was speaking to 20, 30 people a day about their lives and about what they were doing and about the fact that they couldn't leave their homes. You know, a lot of these people were by themselves. I mean, you know, a lot of you guys know yourself, it was really difficult for people. Um, and that was the start for me of coming back to God. He almost had to force me to face somebody else other than myself and look outward rather than inward. Um, as the pandemic went on, I was um, I was thrown into, and I still think God's hand was on it now, I was thrown into a project at work, um, which turned out to be quite a big thing for me um, in terms of it got me out there, it got me known, it got me talking to directors of the company, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but it was all moving at such a pace that I didn't have a chance to congratulate myself and I didn't have a chance to think about the achievements I just pushed on pushed forward kept looking outward kept looking at the people that I was helping um in sort of maybe middle of last year I would say I it got to the point where it was slowing down and people started congratulating me and I started looking to myself again um which I, I knew almost straight away and I lost that piece and that piece that Dave was talking about, I lost it and I knew that I'd lost it. Um, and I just had to get on my knees and pray. And that's what I did. And, you know, I started listening to worship music more. And one of the songs that I listened to um, quite a lot was How Deep the Father's Love for Us. Mm -hmm. And if you get to the last verse, it says, and I'm going to read this now off my phone. I will not boast in anything, no gifts, no power, no wisdom, but I will boast in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection. And that was really, really powerful for me, really powerful. Um, so that, yeah, that prompted me really to get in touch with a church, a local church. Um, and as I say, I've been a few times now. And although I'm not going regularly, I think God's got his hand in that situation because the vicar keeps contacting me. <laughs> I kind of can't get out of it <laughs> but um yeah I mean God's hand has been in my life since minute one and on my own steam I would be a mess I would be I well I just I don't know where I'd be um and yeah I'm just going to keep trusting in God I'm just going to keep focused on the cross I'm just going to keep focused on him and be thankful and be grateful and yeah that's that's all i've got to say really i've i asked Stephen if he could play how deep the father's love for us before we move on to our groups is that all right Stephen? 
Yeah. Yeah. Okay. <clears throat>